Right. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 16. And then also, you might want to keep your finger on Revelation chapter 1, chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. I'll read that in the introduction uh, in just a moment. So, John 15 and Revelation chapter 2. So, now moving to this next section. Uh, We've been on 1 through 8 for quite a while. Very objective, vine, branches, fruit. Um, But now, the commentary on that section. So you get a commentary immediately following 1 through 8. And now we find out this objective lesson about vine and branches is very much relational. It's very relational. It's not just a vine like out in the field. It's not just a branch that grows. We're talking about a real God with a real Savior and real people who abide together in harmony and experience genuine love. This is very relational, this commentary on verses 1 through 8. So let's look at the text. Uh, there's no way I'm preaching at all this morning, but let us at least read the text 9 through 16. <clears throat> I'm having a hard time getting past verse 9, but as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down or put his life to the side for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves slash servants, for the servant slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Since there's a healthy dose of love in this passage, I remind you of Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, because it is a danger for every one of us in the room that bear the name of Christ. He says, the Apostle John says in Revelation 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, I know your toil, your patient endurance, 
how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and that you have not grown weary. All those are great encouragements, great accolades, if you will. That's the right path to walk. The danger is you can walk a doctrinally correct path and fall out of love with Christ. That's the danger. Doctrinally correct, but as far as love goes, bankrupt. Verse 4, he says, But I have this against you. You have abandoned. You have departed. The love you had at first. Now, let me make that a little more clear because of what John says in John 15. That if you love Jesus, the only way that that can be a reality, and the only way there can be any proof that you actually love Jesus, because everybody wants to love Jesus, but the only way that can be true is if you love others, if you love the brethren. So when you get to this passage about Ephesus in Revelation 2, the way they abandoned love was they stopped loving one another. And when they stopped loving one another, they've abandoned the love they had at first in Christ. Meaning that when they first came to Christ, one of the immediate things that came out of that was a love for the brothers. They abandoned it, perhaps for doctrinal reasons, perhaps for theological reasons, but for whatever reason, they are rebuked by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All right, our text is found there in John 15, 9 through 16. Now, if you have your bulletin in the back, and I'm not going right through the verses, they're kind of separated and, and taken out of order a bit, uh, but I needed to do it for this sermon to work this morning. Now, Divine love, verse 9a, the first part, and verse 12. So we're going to talk about divine love. As the Father has loved me, it is the Greek word agape or agapao. Interestingly, the same Greek word is then used in the next clause, so I have loved you. There's this comparison that is there before us. However it is that the Father loved Jesus. Now, we think upon that, I say for a moment, you can think on for a long time. If it was possible for you to comprehend what it means or, and understand exactly how the Father loved the Son, in a sense it's brain overload or heart overload. But then it gets even grander in spectrum, and it's How? Because however I understand that, if I understand it rightly, somebody in here needs to get this this morning. Jesus says, that's the way I loved you. The entirety of how Christ loves you presently and for all of time, the way he loves you, how how is that? It's just like the Father loved him. Let me get this straight. I know a little bit about myself. I've looked in the mirror. I have a past. 
I have circumstances and decisions, and I know a lot about my life, things you don't know, things that my wife don't know. All these ugly blemishes in my life could be dug up because I'm human. But yet I'm told from this text that in spite of all of this ugliness in my life, that Jesus loves me the same way the Father loved him. Without my performance, without my money, without my religiosity, without anything that I bring to the table, he has simply set his love on you. It's a believer. The God of heaven says, I've decided I love you. When did he make this decision? Before you were born. In eternity past somewhere, the God of heaven through Christ set his affections on you. In time and history, you came to a realization, an awareness of the person of Christ, and you fell in love with him. Why? Because he first loved you. You just finally came to the awareness of that reality. Look, somebody in here needs to understand and get this. Some people in this room think that they're not loved. They think they're not appreciated. They think no one cares about them. It's all lies from the pits of hell. The king of the universe has set his affections on you. In what way? In the same way the father loves him. The list can be very long, and I can't pursue the list out. But the Greek word here is a word of comparison. I only bring that up because he's going to use this comparison at least three times in my text. So the word is kathos. It's just a comparison, and we translate it as, or we translate it just as. So we are to analyze how the Father loved the Son, but we're to conclude that that's the way the Son loves us. It's one thing to analyze the Father's love to the Son. That's noble and good. But then I'm to come to this conclusion. If my analyzation is right biblically, that's how I'm loved. Now, how, what are some things? And the list is very long, but I'll give you a short list. I know this much. The Father loved the Son eternally. There's never been a time that the Father didn't love the Son, ever. In all of eternity, there has never been a shortcoming in love from Father to Son. He loved Him eternally. Even way back in the portals of history, somewhere wherever eternity begins and there is no beginning. And He's going to love Him all the way into the eternal future where there's no end. That's the type of love the Father has for the Son. He loves the Son immeasurably. How could you measure the love the Father has for the Son? If we're going to write something down, we have to come up with something profound, and we put it in a hymn, and we say, man, if every person on the earth was a scribe by trade, and they took this stalk, and the, and the ocean was filled with ink, and they dipped this feather in there and wrote the love of God, they would drain the ocean dry trying to describe the Father's love. There's not enough ink in the ocean to write out how much love there is from the Father to the Son. He, he loved him faithfully. There was never a shortcoming in the love. But may we also say this, 
The Father loved the Son distinctively. He loved Him distinctively, apart from every other thing that would be created in all of time, there's a special affection from the Father to the Son, distinctively. There's a relationship here that'll take you all of eternity to figure out. And could we not say He loves Him perfectly? There's no imperfections in the Father's love towards the Son I hope that warms your heart. I, I guess that's my prayer, that it would warm your heart, that somehow we would hear this in a, in a pulpit where it's been said that he's a hellfire and brimstone preacher and that he always preaches on sin and tells people to repent, that it would also be thundered from this pulpit that the love of God to the Son is the love we receive in the Son. I mean, thunder that as much as we would repentance, Right? God is love, is he not? I mean, does the Bible not teach that? I mean, certainly rightly understood, but here we're trying to understand this is the way he loves us. So I think about Christ, self-sacrifice. Do you fathom that? You should be in hell right now. For all of eternity, you should be in hell. You're a lying, thieving, adulterous person at heart. You're an idolater. You're selfish. You're self-absorbed in so many things of your life. And all of heaven will rejoice if God took you and threw you in hell. And you know that in your heart. It's the depravity of your heart tells you that. But yet, Christ came and stood in your heart place. He said, everything Drew deserves, put on me. Everything Johnny deserves, put it on me. Everything Jack deserves, you put it on me. And all the wrath and all the fury and everything that you would do, Father God, towards sin, let it be absorbed in my body in order that they can go free. That's how he loved you. Everything you deserved, he took. And everything you didn't deserve, he freely gave by grace. It's yours, inheritance, adoption, family, and heir. All of those things that are in Christ are now your possession because one has died and you've been written in the will. You get it all. Are you kidding me? We receive everything that Christ has? Somebody ought to be happy about that. I mean, are you telling me that all that heaven has has become my possession? Yes, in Christ, you become an heir of everlasting life. Everything is inherited in Him. It's the way Christ has loved us. I rejoice in that part. I rejoice in it very much because it's true. And we all need to hear it. But now comes the challenge. Comparison number two. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment. That you love one another. How how are we to do that, Lord? Just as I have loved you. Second comparison. How did God love the Son? That's the way the Son loved you. Okay? That's the way we're to love one another. 
It's the same word, same Greek word, same comparison. As I discover what Christ did on my behalf, then I'm to conclude from that, that's the way I'm supposed to treat you. That's the way you're supposed to treat me. That's the biblical understanding of love. Is Somehow in this is me dying and sacrificing what my flesh wants in order that you can be benefited. Does a marriage need to hear this this morning? Does a husband need to hear this? Does a wife need to hear this? Does a church member need to hear this? Does somebody who refuses to join a church need to hear this? How is it that I'm going to die to self and be a benefit to you? It's the driving thought of coming to church. We come to church and we grade the church and we grade the church by how it performed for me. That's not love. Well, the music didn't do this for me. The preaching didn't do this for me. And the people didn't greet me like this. Look, it's not that way. If you love Christ, you came to church today saying, how can I benefit someone else? You say, why would I have that thought? Because you love Jesus. People who love Christ have a driving passion to love others. You cannot claim the love of Christ in this church if you don't have a love for others. How can you say you love God whom you cannot see if you will not love those who you can see? It's impossible. It's the driving thought for the Christian. Let me look, look in, in your Bible. First Corinthians chapter 13. This is the entirety of my marriage counseling in two minutes. It's also my counsel for church membership. It's also my counsel for Christianity. There's a lot said in verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Everybody wants to love God? Okay, great. Here's what love is. Love is patient. I'm waiting for you. I've been waiting around with you for 22 years. Right? It's patient. Do I think everybody in the room is where they ought to be? I don't. I'm wondering why some of you are taking so long. But love's patient. I can't just quit on you. I can't just walk out the door on you. Why? Because love is patient. Love is kind. Love cares about the other person. I want you to get there. I want you to be these things. I want you to be everything Christ would have you to be. Love's kind that way. Love's trying to figure out how to help the other person to be benefited. It does not envy, it does not boast, it's not arrogant. Well, I know everything, you don't know nothing. Yeah, and you're arrogant. It's not love. It's not rude. Ever met anybody that's rude? Ever been around somebody that's rude? That bothers you, don't it? In church, it shouldn't be rude. Why? Because you should care about me, and I should care about you. Why on earth would I be rude to you? It's not right to be rude. Forget the rudeness. I want to come across as kind. I want to come across as patient. Why would I be, why do we do this? What's wrong with us? Who are we the rudest to? The people we live with. 
And then it comes the people we go to church with. That's not love. Love should be the least amount of rudeness in your home. It should be the least amount of rudeness in your church. It does not insist on its way. If this church doesn't become family integrated, I'm gone. Look, dude, it's not about your way. As Jeff Noblet says, maybe your, church, your family should become church integrated. How about that? How about it's not about your way? How about it's what the church is doing and you're to submit and join her and go in all 100% and serve her for the glory of God and you would do so because you love Jesus and since you love him, you love the people who make up the church body. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. You know what love does? It rejoices every time truth is upheld. Amen. Praise God. That's right. That's true. Oh, I'm thankful somebody said it. And rejoice in the truth. And then verse 7. Love bears all things. Well, if you just grab that one line, we'd have a lot less divorce going on in the world. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Christians are to reflect this type of love in church membership, locally and globally. Now, you can disagree with a sermon. You can do whatever you want to do, I suppose. You have to answer to God and work it out with the passage of Scripture. How in the world are you going to love one another How is that going to be possible biblically if you will not unite with a church, join her, and give your life in service to the Lord in that church? How are you going to love one another? I'll tell you exactly what it looks like. It looks just like what the world's doing. We don't want any commitment. We don't want any responsibility. We don't want any sacrifice. We don't want any obligations. So what men and women do today is they just live together. They live together one year. They live together two years. They live together three years. And then one day when their flesh is not being gratified, they just don't come home anymore. They don't come home anymore. They just, they just don't show back up. And they never even have the decency to say goodbye. They just walk out the door to never return. There's no obligation, no responsibility, no commitment. And you got some guy trying to tell some woman he loves her. And in her heart, she's going, if you loved me, you would make covenant with me. You'd marry me. You'd put a ring on my finger. And you would be with me until I die. And she's like, I, I guess he loves me. I think he loves me. And then one day he just walks out the door because there's no binding agreement. It's not love. It's not love. And that type of mentality is what is permeated into the church house. You go, well, I'm not joining the church. I'm not going to be a part of the church. I'm not committing to those type of people because they're this and they're this. And so we just hang out and we date the church and we reap off other people's stuff and we glean from them in the church. And then when it does not satisfy me, I just don't come back. I just don't come back in the door. I don't say bye. I don't call. I don't care. I don't do nothing. I just walk out and never come back. And maybe I might send a letter and tell the pastor, hey, tell the church we're not coming back. And I'm like, every time I get one, I'm like, are you not going to tell the church yourself? How can you walk out on these people? How can you not look them in the face? How can you be so rude? 
How can you be so uncaring? You understand, when you come into the walls of this place that we call church, it's just, it's just you come into a place that there actually is some people here that love and care. And so when you don't come back, it breaks their heart. And I have to see it, and I watch it, and they cry, and they break, and they hurt, because you just walk out the door and say, I'm not coming back anymore. That's not love. But the implication is what? It means you don't love Christ either. That's the danger. Because if you love Christ, then you are to love the church, love one another as Christ has loved you. That's why I love this place, because there's a lot of people sitting in this room been walking together for years. We've gone through things. We've done things. We've got on each other's nerves. We've had this happen and we've had that happen. And we've cried through it. We've laughed through it. We've prayed through it. We've worked through it. Why? Because that's what love does. So you say, well, they don't, people don't care that much about me. Look, dude, I've played tennis once in my life. If I hit the ball over there, I can't play unless you hit it back. You, there's a responsibility on your part. Oh, nobody does this. Nobody does this. Look, you got to hit the ball back. you got to put something in the plate. you got to come back. You've got responsibility. Why have you not loved us instead of trying to condemn us for not loving you? It works both ways. If you want it to be a healthy game of tennis, we got to go back and forth in commitment together. Amen. If you love Christ, you will love His church. I don't know how it's possible to love one another unless you have made covenant together. Second point, and I'll only do two this morning if I can do the second one, which is probably a no. Define abide. Define abide. Verse 9b, abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Abide, the word remain, comes from the Greek word minnow, uh, of someone who does not leave a certain realm or sphere. Remain, continue, abide. We are commanded to stay in the realm of Jesus' love. To abide speaks of our responsibility. Okay? This is not about gaining or losing salvation. That's not the context. That's not what's being talked about. This is about whether or not a Christian lives a life that experiences the love of Christ. I mean, not losing or gaining salvation. But if you want to remain in the love of Christ... You want to stay in that sphere of his love, the condition is what? You must obey. Without obedience, how can you pretend to experience his love? You know a classic example. It's not hard to find the classic example. Look at David before Bathsheba. Read your Bible. Look at David's life. I mean, he gets chosen there at an early age. Look at his relationship. All the words and the experiences he has all the way up to that day with Bathsheba. Analyze that. And then look at his life after Bathsheba. 
Read Psalm 51. See the heartache. See the pain. See the brokenness. See the repentance. See all of that going on in him and how it's just this great dark black cloud in a sense hanging over him. And then get to the part after repentance and you get this glorious word. Lord, restore me. Restore me, meaning I'm out of fellowship, meaning outside of the realm of experiencing your love anymore. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. So he had lost joy because of disobedience, because of sin, transgression of the law of God, had stripped him of love, of joy, of contentment, And so you see him praying for that. He realized what he lost. I want that back. Restore me. The only way for restoration is repentance. David does that, and he has that restoration brought about in his life. You see in verse 10a, a present condition with a future promise. If you keep my commandments, you will abide. Abide in my love. How am I going to do that? By being obedient to the revealed will of God. As I read, as I hear, as in the context of my text, it says I'm supposed to love the others like Christ loved me. You want to abide, then you'll have to obey that. You want to abide and experience the love of Christ? Then love one another Be obedient to that, and you will experience what comes out of that, which is abiding in his love. Comparison number three in verse 10b. It reveals how Jesus kept his Father's commandments. Look again at verse 10. As I have kept my Father's commandments, and as a result, abide in his love. Jesus says, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. The Greek word for keep here, to persist in obedience. Keep, observe, fulfill, pay attention to, especially of law and teaching. Jesus was mindful of what the law of God says. He persisted in obedience to that law. Result, he lived an entirety of life here on earth in human flesh, abiding in his Father's love. In the past, he obeyed his father's commandments. He continues in present time to obey. Ultimately, his obedience will be seen in his substitution on the cross. Father, if you tell me to go to the cross, not my will, your will be done. If you tell me to be nailed to a tree, stripped naked, have a spear shoved through my side, and have all the world mock me, I say, yes, sir, Father. And in that, he will experience the love of God. His ongoing obedience is the secret to him abiding in the Father's love. Obedience in what? Well, in everything, but speech, action, thought. But let me add, in obedience with the agreement of desire. You see, there's a whole lot of people that want to obey because they have to. You want to obey because it's duty's sake. Well, mama told me to do it. Daddy told me to do it. And so I have to do it. That's not how Jesus obeyed. I delight to do thy will. Here's obedience. It's not just keeping the things he says. Okay, I'll love you because I have to. 
I'll put up with Cody because he's my brother. It's not that. I mean, well, I mean, Jesus is going to hit me with a stick if I don't love Cody. No. This is a sense in which obedience is this. I want to love Cody. I want to be a blessing to him or whomever else in the church. I want to do that. It's a delight to be able to serve you. It's a delight to be able to pray for you. It's a delight to walk with you. It's a delight to go on missions together. It's a delight to know that when I go on missions, you'll pray for me. Those are delighting things. And so I want to walk in obedience. That's what we have to have. That's why we get off away from this nonsensical thing about legalism. It's not about legalism. Jesus' obedience was rewarded with ongoing fellowship in his Father's love. You know what Jesus will say later in John 16? He's going to say, and everybody departs, he's going to say something like this. Yet, I am not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Why? Because the Father is with me. How does he know that? Because he's living in obedience. Can't be separated from the love of God. Look, you're never alone when you're walking in obedience to the things of God. Never alone. You will experience His love. Our obedience brings about fellowship in Jesus' love. Disobedience puts us outside of experiencing Jesus' love. And note, let me say it one more time. Jesus was not a legalist. That's the accusation when you start preaching about obeying the law, doing what you're supposed to do, if you obey, if you keep. Oh, you're a legalist. Are you telling me Jesus was a legalist? Because that's a, the, his life is the standard that we're to judge ours by. Just as he loved me, so we are to love one another. How do we do that? By obeying what I've commanded you. That's not legalism. It's called Christianity. It's a freedom here. I'm free. There's no law contradicts me loving you. There's no barrier to me loving you. I'm free to love you all that I want to love you and to love more and more and more because I learned it from Jesus. It's not legalism. It's love in Christianity. Verse 13, you see a self-sacrifice. You have the word greater. You have the words lay down. And you have the word friend. Greater. Above standard in intensity, greater than all other accountings. Greater in what? Greater in love. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is the goal. It is the standard. It's the mark that we're shooting for. People confess that they have great love for God, but never think about the reality which accompanies such a profession. I challenge you, you can go to Azel, go to Walmart today. You love Jesus? Oh, yeah, I love Jesus. How do we know that? If you're not willing to unite with a church and walk together and sacrifice together and put somebody else before you, how in the world am I supposed to conclude that you love Jesus? Are you, are you, I'm supposed to conclude because you came here for one hour, you know, 50 times a year, that that meant you loved God? Let's try it out. We could try it, could we not? Why don't you do this with your spouse? I will talk to you for one hour a week because I love you. Anybody want to try that? You want to try that, Chris? Tell Raquel, I'm going to talk to you one hour a week, and that's all I'm talking. I'll, I'll be around you for one hour, but all the rest of my time will be invested in me. 
Yeah. You come in for marriage counseling next week after you do that. Con- John's going to like this. I wrote this for John. John Speed, not John Walton. Confession of divine love that does not prove itself in brotherly love is akin to telling a person you love life but support abortion. This is the way it is. Here's, here's love that you would lay down is the way the ESV translated. It's an interesting Greek word that means to take off, to give up, to, to put something to the side. When you, greater love has no one than this, instead of lay down, that I would take my life and I would put my life on the shelf over here in order that I can do something with you to benefit you. That's what he's saying. Greater love has no one than this to put me in the back burner in order that I can put you on the front in order that I can benefit you. My whole perspective of life is changed of why I get up, why I come to church, why I sing, why I worship, why I pray. You know, it's because I want to be a blessing to someone else. Churches are full all over the country trying to figure out how to get something for me. But if they came to church to do something for you, it'd be totally different. Totally different. Because it would be biblical. And he says to lay down your life for your friend. It's not a context of enemies and not enemies. This is a context of 11 believers that he's talking to. And he says, friend, one who is intimate, on intimate terms in a close association with another. The greater love that we are to exhibit is by putting ourselves last, putting others first. And it's applied to friends. I do love a lot of things about Mexico, and I'm excited to go here soon. But one of the things that I do respect, at least my context in Mexico, is this, at least in a church context, is the Spanish word hermano, which means brother. And so I, I got in trouble a few times when I first you know, started using the three Spanish words I knew. And so I would call some pagan guy, hermano, hey, hermano, you know. No. That's, you don't call them hermano. You may call him amigo or something else, but not hermano. Brothers are those who are brought together in fellowship in the church through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the brother. That's, that's who the, the, the brother is. So here, here it is, in a sense, how in the world am I going to love the brother if I'm not willing to make some type of formal commitment of association with him? I got a friend here in the area. He's never joined a church in his entire life. He said, ever. And I'm, how do you love the brethren? You don't even know who they are. You have no clue who they are. And, and here's how it works. I tell my friend this. I say, at the moment you get in a disagreement, you just walk away. There's no commitment. There's no strings attached. And you just go on about your way. You can't love the brethren because you don't even know who they are. And if you had brothers, then you would be subject to discipline when you were in sin. And you don't even have anybody to discipline you because you don't even have a church. You don't have a pastor. You don't have a church. No one will discipline you. Nobody holds you accountable. Nobody gives you responsibility. You have no obligation. That is not loving the brothers. If we cannot love the brother we see, as I've already said, how can we love the God whom we cannot see? 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, anyone, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He's a liar. That's what he is. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot, it's an impossibility, he cannot love God 
whom he has not seen. Remember, we're defining the word abide. And I'll close with this this morning. But to abide is to obey. To obey is to love one another. To love one another is to walk together in sacrificial service. To sacrifice is to deny self and seek the benefit of another. To see this exemplified, look to Jesus and what he says. And he looks at the eleven and he says, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends. Great word, encouraging word. What does it mean? Look on the cross. As they run and hide in fear, there hangs Jesus dying to himself for their benefit. For their benefit. And that's what love is. Me denying me for the benefit of you. Love one another just as Christ has loved you. So Jeff's going to come and lead us as I pray. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for 53 years as a member of your church. Thank you, Lord, for being a part of the body of Christ. Thank you for the joys and the privileges of seeing men and women express, show, and demonstrate love to one another. Thank you for all the love that has been shown to me and my family over the years here. Thank you for the love I've seen between brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for all the tears I've seen shared together, the prayers that have been prayed together, the finances that have been given to help one in need, the cars that have been fixed, the houses that have been rearranged, the furniture that has been donated, all of the things, a countless number of things that have been done between brothers and sisters in Christ just in this little church. Lord, these are all demonstrations or expositions of this text. They're loved by Christ, and in return, they're loving one another because love has to have an expression. Thank you for allowing me to be a part, not only of receiving the expression, but being allowed to express love to others. Lord, all of us need to grow in this area, increase in this area. Lord, as we receive love from you, may it be shared generously and delightfully with others. Others that do goofy things, that have weird attitudes and quirky traits, help us, Lord, to deny our flesh and esteem others as greater than ourselves. We pray these things by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.